Warning! This episode of The Secret Cinema contains discussions of disturbing and adult content. So, heads up! My mother had a hat like that. My mother had a hat like that. I'm not making conversation. She wore it for years. She wore it when I was a child. I didn't just make it up. It happened. Excuse me. Who the fuck do you think you are? I'm talking to you. What am I, a stone? Did I say I want to lick your pussy? I said my mother had that same hat. You cunt, what am I, a dog? I'd like to slash your fucking face. I'd like to slash your motherfucking face apart. Will somebody help me? You don't know who I am. Is everybody in this town insane? Cinema. Welcome to The Secret Cinema, the film podcast that knows where it belongs. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and we're joined again by director, actress, and my sister, Alex Carone, for a discussion of Stuart Gordon's 2005 CD existential drama, Edmund. I don't have any notes, so here's Carrie with the plot summary. At a tarot card reading, Edmund is told he is not where he belongs. He immediately leaves his wife, and sets out into the wild nightlife of New York City to find some basic pleasures. But when this proves difficult, Edmund's journey takes a dark turn, and he finds that where he belongs is the last place he expected. Edmund is based on a play by David Mamet, and Mamet also wrote the film's screenplay. Mamet has a very distinct style, typified by a percussive, repetitive rhythm that gives his words a heightened poetic quality. In our first clip, from the very last scene of the film, you'll hear Mamet's style very clearly in the way Edmund, played by Mamet regular William H. Macy, and a character credited as Prisoner, played by Bokeem Woodbine, converse. Here's that clip. You can't control what you make of your life. Well, that's for damn sure. There's a destiny that shapes our ends. Mm. Rough hew them how we may. However, the motherfucking man. And that's the truth. You know that is the truth. And people say it's hereditary or it's environment, but I think it's something else. What do you think it is? I think it's something beyond that. Mm-hmm. Beyond these things that we can know. I think maybe in dreams we see what it is. What do you think? I don't know. I don't think we can know. I think if we knew it, we'd be dead. We would be God. We would be God. That is absolutely right. Or, or some genius. No, I don't think even genius can know what it is. No, some great genius. Or some philosopher. I don't think even genius can see what we are. You don't think that... I, I think that we can't perceive it. Well, something's going on, I'll tell you that. And somewhere some poor sucker knows what's happening. You think? Shit, yeah. Some whacked out sucker somewhere. In the Ozarks? Shit, yes. Some guy. Some inbred sucker walks around all day just... <laughs> you think? Yeah. Well, maybe not him, but somewhere, some guy. 
Some fuck locked up. It's got time for reflection. Mm. Well, some fucking, I don't know, some kid's just been born. Some kid that's just been born. And you know he's got no preconceptions. Yes. All he's got. Absolutely right. Huh? Yes. Is maybe it's memory. That's what I'm saying. Now, just maybe. It could be. Oh, or some, some knowledge. Some intuition. Yes. I don't even mean intuition. Something, something. Or maybe some animal. Why not? See, now that's the whole time when they're saying we'll just wait for the men from space. Maybe they're already here. Maybe they are. Maybe they're animals. Yes. That were left here. Eons ago. Long ago. And have been bred here. Well, maybe we're the animals. Maybe we are. The character of Edmund is very racist, and the nature of his racism plays a key role in his journey through the plot. In our second clip, from about seven minutes into the film, a stranger at a bar, played by fellow Mammoth regular Joe Mantegna, stirs up and influences Edmund's racism with some open racism of his own. If this episode's intro sample didn't clue you into how awful of a person Edmund is, this one should do the trick. Here's that clip. I tell you who's got it easy. Who? The niggers. Sometimes I wish I was a nigger. Sometimes I wish I was too. I'd rob a store. I don't blame them. I swear to God. Because I want to tell you, we're bred to do the things that we do. Yes. Northern race, one thing. Southern race, something else. And what they want to do is sit under the tree and watch the elephant. And I don't blame them one small bit. Because there's too much pressure on us. Yes. And that's no joke and that's not poetry. It's just too much. It is. It absolutely is. A man has got to get out. What do you mean? A man has got to get away from himself. It's true. Edmund's misogyny also plays a key role in his journey, primarily in a series of scenes where the apparently well-off character tries to negotiate prices with sex workers. In our final clip, a very mammity discussion between Edmund and a character credited as B-Girl, played by Denise Richards, you'll hear the first of these failed negotiations in full. Here's that clip, and we'll see you on the other side for our discussion of Edmund. Want to buy me a drink? Yes. I'm putting myself at your mercy. This is my first time in a place like this. I don't want to be taken advantage of. You understand? Buy me a drink, and we'll go in the back. And do what? Whatever you want. Fifty dollars. I need drink. You get a commission on the drinks? Yes. How much commission do you get? Fifty percent. That's a hundred bucks. It's too much. What? Too much. Thank you. 80. 
No, thank you. 80. I'll give you 50. I'll give you the 50 you'd get if I gave her 100 for the drink. But I'm, I'm not going to give them 100. You have to buy me a drink. No, I'm sorry. All right, give me 30. On top of the 50? Yeah, you give me 80. To you? Yes. I should give the 80 to you? Yes. And then you give her the 50? Yes, I got to give her the 50. No. For the drink. No, you don't have to pay her for the drink tea. It's not tea. It's not tea? If it's not tea, what is it then? I came in here to be straight with you. Why do we have to go through this? Get in or get out. Don't mill around. Get in or get out. Welcome to a new episode of Secret Cinema, and we have a returning guest. Guest, could you please reintroduce yourself? Hello, I'm Alex. It's my sister, Alex! Welcome back, Alex. And we brought you back for a movie that, uh, broadly speaking, is in your wheelhouse. (laughs) Uh, The 2005 Stuart Gordon, uh, let's say, CD philosophical drama... Edmund. Oh, wow. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, Alex, uh, since you're newest to this movie, uh, what do you think of it? Well, uh, I did get an opportunity to read the original play before I watched the film, and the film is very true to the play, and I still don't exactly know what point was being made, or <laughs> yeah. if there was a point at all, but... There are some themes we can delve into later. I I don't yeah. have an overview though. Yeah, there's definitely this is one of those things where there's definitely themes. Like it's like yeah. undeniable that there's themes, but yeah, the But there's more themes than plot, if that, that makes sense. Yeah. The aims of the themes seem to escape me. <laughs> Carrie, what do oh, you Oh, it's kinda like Mother, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. we just watched. Yes. Ah. Holiday film. I would say that I think I might enjoy this more than Mother, though. Ooh. Really? Yeah, uh, but I think that Mother is a better made movie. Okay. So there you go. Okay. Uh, This is a real puzzler. Yeah. Oh, yes. Edmund the Puzzler. Edmund the Puzzler. Surprisingly, one of the tougher films (laughs) we've had to pick apart. I, I... Okay, so this is the third time I've seen this movie, and I feel like every time I watch this movie, I come away with with it focused on something different, or like I have a different takeaway from the last time I saw it. And the first time I saw this, I I didn't like it, because that's usually my reaction to Mammoth, is uh, (laughs) first time. I'm like, no, all right, Mammoth, you lost me. Like, I just... uh, I'm yeah. not your biggest what? fan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. But I this third I time, because I was taking notes and like writing down specific quotes, I uh, and I also looked into the tarot cards and what those <gasps> meant. Ooh. Good. And so because I did that, I I still don't really understand <laughs> this movie or I play whatever Edmund. Uh, 
But a, I mean, it's a movie. We yeah. watched a movie. Yeah, we watched a movie. <laughs> that was the, a movie. That's the background idea movie. of this podcast. <laughs> yes. Correct, Alex. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I don't know. All right. I, well. <laughs> no, I do want to say I'm super excited you looked into the tarot card meaning because I'm interested in tarot cards, but I didn't know much about them. And that was supposed to be super symbolic in this film. Oh, I hell could, yeah. I could tell that it was all about the tarot cards, but I didn't know what they meant, so I really want to know. Well, and the tarot card uh, reading is the catalyst for essentially Every, the whole movie. Uh, the whole yeah, movie. yeah, totally. Really yeah. quickly, before we get into the movie, Sorry. I just want to say that um, I am a huge David Mamet fan, which is why I watch this movie. I'm also a huge Stuart Gordon fan. Carrie yes. and I recently went through the almost the entirety of his discogra- uh, not discography, filmography. <laughs> Sorry, I've been listening to a lot of uh, right albums later. Yeah, no. But uh, Stuart Gordon's <laughs> Stuart Gordon and David Mamet seemingly could not be more different in their styles. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. David Mamet has this very clean coldness to it, and uh, and he is a director also. He's primarily known as a playwright, though, and his plays uh, are less known for their content and more for the the almost percussive rhythm of the dialogue, something we're definitely going to talk about. Well, right. it's just thematics. And his themes, his masculinity, his masculinity and, yeah, and, uh, and games of confidence are big themes. And uh, American culture. American culture, right, all, of, right. all of which is, appears in this movie. But Stuart Gordon, Stuart Gordon is a... a, a, a fully a B-movie filmmaker uh, who's yeah, most man. famous for the wonderful film reanimator right. uh and basically has made a career of just like finding seedy material and making deeply enjoyable satisfying cathartic weird <laughs> movies out of them yeah. i love his movies he is not necessarily the best a... director in the world but he yeah. is one of the most consistently entertaining even something like robot jocks uh, is like amazing or space, in this or space truckers space truckers which uh, again, we will talk about further in this yeah, episode. Yeah, did you see the woman from Space Yeah, Truckers? you're getting ahead of me, Gary. Yeah, sorry. You can get the movie. Anyway. All right, so... Both. Well, and, and Stuart Gordon has a real thing for special effects, too. Uh, but he didn't really get to show that off in this movie. Yeah, but his Except for that... Except for that bald cap at the end. Yeah. That, his, that, sure yeah. But his, his love of seediness was definitely here. I feel like David Mamet wouldn't have been able, as a director, to dive into the the gross world of Edmund the same way that Stuart Gordon fearlessly sure, does. Fair. Yeah. Okay, so before we get into what happens and what this movie's about, I want to just ask a broad question. Would you guys say that this movie is a character study of Edmund? Uh, no, because... I did not get much of his character. I got his actions in one or two days, like, total. Yeah. I know that there were some outliers in the timeline in the movie, like, for averages, but I didn't actually see much delving into his character other than these strange outbursts. Yeah, I agree with Alex. I think that this isn't a character study because we don't know what Edmund's character is. We essentially see him have a psychotic break. Yeah. And he, I mean, well, maybe like a nervous breakdown would be a better way to mm-hmm. describe it because he, ha- he has this tarot card reading and then he makes these incredibly drastic changes to his life or, or drastic changes to his lifestyle that essentially affect his entire future. But we don't know what he was like before that, 
and and afterwards it seems like he's not really like mournful or uh uh what's the word I'm looking for like regretful regretful was the yeah but so I don't yeah I don't think it was really a character study as much I feel I really feel and this is again why I'm not like a, a huge first viewing mammoth fan I feel like this was a writing exercise that David Mamet did and was like, oh, I turned it into a play. Yeah. Okay. I think it was less about one man and more about some men. Like, it was trying to make a broader point than yeah. a character. I what do you Yeah. Think? I would say that it's, it's not a character study, but it is pointedly about the concept of identity. Because, yeah, yeah you're right, we don't that, really yeah. get to know Edmund, but Edmund's drive seems to be this idea of he <coughs> thinks that who he is is not his real self, and he thinks that he is not in the right place, and we see this search for a place, but and we're not given the context, but we are given along the way, I feel like we see him meet with people who he assumes their identity means something about them. And then we see the way that that is either true or not true. And if I was going to say broadly, if I had to guess before we dive into the specifics, what Mm -hmm. this movie is actually about, it is about the search for identity and what, how someone's identity and fate play into each (laughs) other. But again, I don't actually have like, confidence that mm-hmm. that's for sure what it's about that just seems to be the most consistent theme the throughout. most prevalent i totally agree that this is about identity or at least identity is one of the major themes in it um less than a character because especially with mammoths somewhat stilted at times seeming dialogue yeah. it does come across as more an art piece than something that's supposed to mirror life. Yes, definitely. But do you think that by the end of the movie, Edmund has figured out his identity or is closer to figuring out his identity? That's a hard question. <sighs> uh, because uh, like, I would argue no. Well, let's he let's seems, well. Let's get into the journey then. Because uh, I, I see for me, I think this movie is about karma or like predestination. Oh. Because that is kind of what the tarot cards are all about. And that's kind of, that's a major theme throughout the movie where he takes certain actions and those actions are, through Stuart Gordon's directing, referred back to a specific tarot card. And it's kind of positing the idea that the tarot card is predicting his behavior and that tarot card already said what he was going to do. Yeah, okay. Right. So let's, to get quickly, because the, the tarot card scene is like the second scene in the movie. So very briefly, there's, we are introduced to Edmund. Is play, He's played by William H. Macy. He works for a place called Stearns and Harrington. And the re- receptionist tells him as he walks into the building that, uh, he's meeting with Harrington at one fifteen on Monday. Some, uh, it's, it's another day. Yeah. And he goes to, Edmund goes to the elevator, and in the elevator, a man and a woman are, like, passionately making out. And when they see him, they kind of, they stop making out, and they kind of grin at him. And 
that's basically after that he's we see him leaving work and he's walking on the street and that's when he comes to the tarot parlor where a fortune teller played by Billy Madison's mom, Frances Bay. <laughs> mom, uh, not not mom. Oh, grandma. Grandma. Grandmom. She's grandma. His, in Billy Madison, his mom is dead, so she essentially raises him like Oh, mom. okay. <laughs> so okay. I've, I'm 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 lampshading my own mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so she reads his fortune. But, you know, they don't really talk to each other in the scene. She just shows the cards. And there's, she turns over a lot of cards, but the camera only really focuses on, like, three or four cards. And she only says one thing to him, and she says, you don't belong here. Or, you are are not not where where you you belong. belong. Thank you. Okay. Which, Which, I looked up the first scene of the play, and that is the only line from the first scene of the play that makes it into the movie. Well, the first scene of the play is the tarot reading. Yeah. The play starts off very jarringly (laughs) with that tarot reading, which the first thing I noticed about the movie was that it started off giving Edmund more context. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And instead of just like, here's a guy getting his fortune read, it it showed him at work, which well, added and, a different a different layer to it. Yeah, well and and the meeting that he gets a notice for is at one fifteen and the address for the tarot card reading is at one fifteen. It's like right. whatever street it's on, yeah, the address 115, is 115. Which you can see on the building. Mm-hmm. But the cards that she turns over, I wrote down a few of them and I looked up a few of them. Um, so she turns over the moon, death, the hanged man, the hierophant, the tower, wheel of fortune, the ace of swords, the three of swords. And so I um, looked up the two that are specifically flashed back in um, later scenes. Mm-hmm. So the, um, what is it, the Hierophant? The Hierophant, yeah. Am I saying that wrong? I, I don't know. I thought it was Hierophant, but I'm not Hierophant, actually sure. that sounds better. Uh, so there's an, a later scene with Joe Mantegna where he hands William H. Macy's character a business card, and the business card transforms into the Hierophant. And what Hierophant is... Is it's just another way to say the high priest card. So it's okay. a person, um, specifically in Greece, it was a priest who interprets sacred mysteries or, or esoteric principles. Um, and they're usually like a religious symbol or someone who is like guiding you along a path. And essentially, that's what Joe Montaigne's character does is he opens kind of the the sexual floodgates right? Yeah. for Edmund. Uh, right. Edmund says to him, I don't feel like a man. And Joe Mantegna says, you need to get laid. And right. that is, it, it should, it's well, worth pointing out too, uh, it, we're, we're kind of jumping ahead of, yeah. of an important scene, but broadly Edmund seems to be like sort of a lost sheep in the sense that the slightest suggestion seems to guide him. Like, he does seem yeah, to recognize very... other things. But Joe Mantegna is literally a guy he sits next to in a bar. It's right. Like, it, it's, it's, uh, and, and the same thing with the fortune teller. He stops at the fortune teller, but it seems heavily implied that he goes in because of the 115. He's holding the 115 post-it note when he gets there. And so it seems like he is being just led by the symbols and uh, whatever seems to be, like, his fate 
he goes along with fully. He that's, fully embraces it. That's a good point. And that also ties into the racist aspects. Yes. Like, the bar scene starts out with that guy talking about the basketball game yeah. on TV and just... Yeah, he's dropping the N-word like yeah. crazy. But also, so it's the weird racism coupled with when William H. Macy asks him, or Edmund, asks him, what do you do? He just says, I don't know, what everyone does. What everyone does. What everyone does. What everyone does. Pussy, power, money, adventure. And then he says, I guess that's it. And then he keeps naming things. Yeah. <laughs> Religion, release, yeah, he... gratification, but also all these things can line up with the cards. All these yeah. things can line up with what Edmund is seeking. Yeah. He just, his life is laid out for him in both those scenes, in both by the this... fortune teller scene and the bar scene well, by two different people. By this high priest if you will. Indeed. Yeah. Like I, I, I see that. I wrote down that he lists literally everything that's that uh, Edmund does, but he listed in a way of it's things that are to relax or relieve pressure. Right. Because he keeps saying like, yeah, you know, as a white guy, there's too much pressure. Right. Too much pressure, yeah, man. Yeah. Part of the racism thing is he's like, he says like, black people just want to sit under the tree and look at elephants. Right. Like, uh, and they white the, people yeah, have all Jesus. this pressure to achieve. Like, I it's know. super racist. It's incredibly racist. And they also say, or he says, uh, there are certain responsibilities that black people just never accepted. Yeah. It's weird, but it also sets the tone for a good portion of the rest of the film when there are constantly black people that Edmund is interacting with that he has this idea of, like, they don't have pressure. I want their life. Why are they trying or to... Or, like, I'm smarter than them. Yeah. Yeah. But I have so much more on me than them... Therefore, they deserve this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which definitely comes into play in later scenes. Yeah. yeah. Well, really quickly before we... I want to jump back to the scene before this where uh, Edmund goes home and basically tells his wife that he's leaving her. Right! And this scene, he says... Uh, this scene is um, basically just establishes that he is just... He, this is where he like speaks all of these very clear lines about I don't want this life. I'm bored. I want something different. You don't interest me. I'm not attracted to you, to his wife. And, uh, yeah, uh, he says, you don't interest me spiritually or sexually. That's what he right. says to his wife. Yeah. And, uh, he says it in two big themes. And it seems like, it sure. almost seems like too, though, that when he's telling her this, he expects her to just accept it. Like, it's very... Right, it's, it's very straightforward. It's not a conversation. He's just telling her. Yeah. And it is it is so strange how deadpan and unaffected he is when he just says, like, I'm going. And she says, well, will you bring me back some cigarettes when you come back? And he says, I'm not coming back. And she, like, thinks he's joking. Well, we should point out that the woman who plays his wife in the movie is actually David Mamet's wife. Yeah. Oh. And and I want to do, too, just mention, because it's Rebecca Pigeon and William H. Macy, and these 
two are two of the best people at delivering David Mamet's dialogue. Da- As we mentioned before, David Mamet's dialogue has this very weird rhythm. Uh, two of Rebecca Pigeon's I... lines in the scene are, you can't live this life, so you're leaving me? Which has like a very like circular quality to it. And she has a lot of lines where she repeats words. She says, go, get out of here, go. And Rebecca right. Pigeon is able to invest well both of them are able to invest these lines with <coughs> genuine emotion but by playing the rhythm by that, sticking to the I rhythm know, of the dialogue that whole scene struck me very funny not yeah not, it's yeah. really ha, weird. Ha, funny but the and it's the way mammoth's lines played out but especially in that scene i found myself thinking wow this is exactly how i read it and when i read it i thought How do you perform this? Yeah. (laughs) So that's not... I don't know if I feel that's good, but I tend to favor hyper-realism very... Yeah, I want to yeah, make I want to make this point since we're talking about this. I, I in a lot of I've seen most of D- Mammoth's movies, and at least in his movies, there is a clear distinction of three camps of actors. Uh, the most common camp is people who are just actors who they they can do the scenes, but they they just play it like like it's just normal dialogue. Right, and so they are kind of forgettable. They might be in the movie and be decent, but you don't really remember their performances. Then there are people like Rebecca Pigeon and William H. Macy who have been with David Mamet for a very long time and know that, and, and treat the material with fidelity to the way it's written. That is the focus that they, they clearly approach the emotion through the rhythm of the words rather than the content of the scene. And so they play it exactly how, like you said, it reads on the page. But then there are other actors, and I can't necessarily say there's one of them in this movie, but maybe you guys disagree, but uh, there's a third class of actors, and I'll say Philip Seymour Hoffman in State and Maine, or Mm. Alec Baldwin in Glenn Grey, Glenn Ross, who are able to somehow see everything I would about say, the, the... I would say Joe, yeah. Ma- Joe Mantegna. Oh, yeah, Joe Mantegna. Yeah, Joe Mantegna, yeah, yeah. I would say, yeah, because in so Homicide, he the, nails the dialogue. Yeah. He's Present so good, yeah. What's written as written, but also... As it, human. As human, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah because that is, that's, like, really my main problem with some of Mammoth is his dialogue can feel like... I don't want to make this comparison, but... <laughs> I'm going to. Uh, it can feel like Shakespearean at times, where no, it's like, I mean. yeah. where it's like it's... the the parameter that it's that it's written in right. doesn't lend itself to humanity. Yeah. To me, it does. It often comes across as spoken word poetry. Yeah, it, yeah, sure. Some of them feels like a poetry slam, and I. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate the poetry of words and the rhythm. I like rhythm in yeah. speaking. Sure. But at the same time, when it's all of it, it can be jarring, especially when you're trying to emotionally yeah. connect with characters. Yeah. I read that he he does sometimes write with a metronome. That makes a lot of that sense. That makes a ton Doesn't of sense. Doesn't that make yeah. a lot yeah. of sense? Yeah. So, so yeah, there's a, a couple scenes specifically where I can think, like, the Rebecca Pigeon scene where he's leaving his wife, that's right. one where it's like, yeah, this feels like it was written to a, 
Oh, yeah. and, 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 and there's bump, a, the, bump, I will say the yeah. very last scene of this movie, not to, I don't that want to discuss too, it right now, yeah. is so explicitly this, where yep. they, the, the ping-ponging between the two actors is so precise that it does not resemble human conversation yeah. Yeah. entirely. It's two people speaking one speech. Yes, exactly. Entirely. It's, it's like when you go to a play... It, or like a uh, you know go see some theater and you can see where the actors have rehearsed giving each other breaks in their dialogue mm-hmm. to let the other speak instead of letting it just which is, letting each other naturally interrupt each other which is frustrating to me because that's not how I prefer theater but I get that that's the way that it's people more have gotten clear. used to theater being it's sure. his and it's his. And it's too. his thing. He's. It's and not it's like his he, thing. I just don't like. Yeah, it's not like. A, it's, <laughs> yeah. You should specify that it's yeah. not really like a pretentious thing where he started normal and was like, now like I'm the Picasso of theater, so I will shove <laughs> sure. my words up. He always it's wrote the like way this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This. So this movie came out in 2005, but the play premiered in 1982, and, and the movie reads like that. Yeah. 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 It does. It feels like it's set in a yesteryear. Uh, if you will. Yeah. But I found out that I did the math and he was around 35 years old when this play came out. God damn. Was, yeah. Uh, he and Stuart Gordon now, uh, in 2018, are 70. Wow. Man. Yeah, they're both 70. So old. I know. <laughs> so this, sad. Don't say that on a podcast. What? <laughs> you have old listeners. No, I know, but just like, it's sad because I think of, I, I, for, Maybe not Mammon as much, but Stuart, Stuart Gordon's movies strike me as like eternally youthful yeah. because yeah. they're so they're so in love with B like the whole they're genre so of B. They're so fun. There's yeah. a scene where uh, two robots fit, not robots, but two robotic arms fist bump at the end of Robot Shocks. <laughs> it's like the most beautiful. Or I always silly think thing. of I always think of in Reanimator where the decapitated t- head licks the woman's body. Yeah. Oh yeah, stuff <laughs> like that. Where it's like you can't watch it. Watching those movies, it's so hard to imagine that director ever being old. <laughs> like, yeah, it's you like, know what? He's Old like an people are teenager. the new young people. He's the Dick Clark of B-movies. He's the Dick Clark of B-movies. Okay, okay. since we... That was actually a really... Oh, you're gonna open your beer? Whatever. That's a podcast thing. They can have it. Alright, so... Podcast yeah, thing! Podcast thing. Open the beer. I'm being Stuart Wellington right Yeah, exactly. Now. <laughs> well, and speaking of Stuart Wellington, I'd like to mention that, uh... Stuart Wellington's beloved Castle Freak is directed by Stuart Gordon. Yes. Uh, anyway, I don't so know. we had that nice little break, and now we're getting to a new segment of the film, which kind of works. Uh, it, it, it ties into everything, but it's nice that we're approaching it separately. Is the sex as transactions section of the, the movie? The take your oh dick out section. The take, take your, your dick, dick out, out section, section, or <laughs> buy me a drink section. There's a lot of yeah. things we can call this, but. So after Joe Mantegna tells William H. Macy that he needs to get laid, I don't know. Joe, Joe Mantegna yeah, gives him a card to go to a to gentleman's club. So he goes to the gentleman's, gentleman's club. club. That's what it's called. It's a strip club. It's a strip club. Okay, so he goes to this strip club. He meets meets up with Denise Richards. Uh, and Ooh, I gotta say, hey, really young, good. Denise she Richards. actually nailed it. Really good. Yeah. 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 She like. She like. Im- uh, that might be her best role. She plays it so, I, like, something about the wide-eyed expression she uses is so perfect for, like, the sales pitch that she kind of does as, like, yeah. it, he clearly, 
expects this to be easy because it's a strip club. It's it's like yeah. seems like a no brainer. Oh yeah, strippers, sex. All I'll get the laid. sex workers in this do a phenomenal job. Yes. I really yeah. got a great impression of that portion. That was the most important portion of the film. To Didn't me. it yeah. seem like those we got to know the character of those those uh, women more than we got to know Edmund? Almost? Not necessarily. I mean, I, I kind of get. Like, but it was mostly about their work, and they were doing what they needed to do. Yeah, like, hey, I need and to so, make some money. But mm-hmm. I want to, I want to think, I want to mention this, which is you guys mentioned that the Rebecca Pigeon scene when he breaks up with his wife, it's not a conversation. He tells her, right, this is what it is, and it seems like he expects. Uh, his conversations with the sex workers to be the same way. Oh yeah, and the fact that it is so much more complicated, and 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 not just in the fact that they're they it's it's not complicated because they're people. It's complicated because there is a system in place, seemingly preventing only him from participating in sex. Right, because right. nothing nothing they say is. It's it's weird, but it's not inherently unreasonable given the circumstance that there would be weird rules to allow you to have sex with a stripper. That's sure. obviously very illegal <laughs> it's in, in most places in America. And so there's weird nuances. Like the, Denise Richards says, you have to buy me a drink, and the drink is very expensive. But once you buy the drink, you can go to the back room, and you can do whatever you want. And she makes commission on the drinks, so that's part of why she wants him to buy a drink. But the drink is a hundred dollars. Yeah. Okay, so that was one thing that between the play and the film was very strange. The drink in the play was twenty dollars. I remember that <laughs> because I thought that is too much for a drink. Yeah. And then in the movie, <laughs> it was a hundred dollars. Okay. And that's way too much. So for we a gotta drink. assume they were like. That was the one period detail where they're like, we gotta modernize this. People gotta know. People gotta have Man, a dollar are, amount in their head that is too much. Are there people paying a hundred dollars no. for drinks? No. Oh uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't you ever listened to Aziz Ansari routine about Kanye? No, like, there's definitely yeah. like people okay. are paying for expensive drinks. I mean, popping <laughs> bottles, sure, but like, yeah, but just you go a to drink? a strip club and you pay and buy a- someone else a drink for a hundred dollars. No fucking way. <laughs> Sorry, but I'm and, taking this from the former bartender. All right, I'm just saying it's a I strip club. I don't work club. at a strip club, I feel like, so and, I don't know. And this, we talked about but this before, but we charge ten dollars for drinks at my. Fancy high class restaurant. So well, and usually in Chicago, you know, you go get a cocktail, and it's between like twelve and eighteen dollars, right? And, and it's 18's like eighteen's like nice ingredients, yeah, or like a lot of drink, right? I want a lot of drink if I'm going to pay eighteen dollars, but but a hundred is no, that's well, nonsense. Yeah. Well, and that's what happens. He is says he, it's too much. He's like, this is too much. I can't pay that much. Which but uh, most I, people just walk out. That's the weird thing. He yeah. tries to haggle everything. Yeah, that's why I think almost this this part of the movie, this like sexual exploration part of the movie, should be called like the haggle. Yeah, the haggle portion. It's all haggling because he haggles with Denise Richards, and then he gets kicked out of the club, and he ha- and then he goes to a peep show where he tries to haggle. Well, and let's really quickly before we tell you the specifics of the peep show, it says twenty five cents on the way in, which he, is an insane amount, insanely cheap. But he gets up the stairs, and it's two dollars cover, and then he gets into the room. 
and he's told to pay $10, but he only has a 20, so he gives $20. Like, they're pointedly, there's like, there's a pointed financial element. Like, yeah. the, every one of these these scenes with the is sex workers up. is yeah. almost entirely about the money. I should but have gone through and added is... up how much money he spent by the end of the night. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he spent so much money trying not to spend money. Yeah. But he clearly had money because the lamp that his wife was talking about, the lamp that the girl broke, was $220. Yeah. Or 280 It was so, yeah. over $200. So, yeah, is it that he... Because he, at one point, he does try to pay somebody with a credit card, but he, he, like, absolutely refuses... Him. Like, somehow this idea of, like, having cash is, like, really tough for him, and... But he refused to pay for the initial spa visit in cash. That's or in, in... In credit. By, yeah. By credit, I'm sorry. Because... When he goes to the spa, which is a brothel that they call a spa and charges a spa on your card, the lady offers to him, oh, it's $68 for the hour. We can take cash or we can take card. And it will be charged to your card as Atlantic Spa and Tennis. Yeah. But I wonder if he he says, I'll pay cash. And then when he gets to the room... And is asked for cash, he explains that he does not have the cash. I thought the implication there was, I, it feels like he keeps trying to just pay a flat rate so that the haggling part can be done with. Yeah. And and so, like, with the, the part with Biling in the Peep Show, he wants to pay $10, but he wants to pay that $10 so he can get to the part where she touches him. Right. And she's more than willing to be like, yeah, just pay me the flat rate, but she won't touch him. And yeah. then he gets to the place where Mina Savari will touch him at the spa, but... He assumes that he pays the flat rate to get in there, but once he gets in there, she's like, oh, I have hidden fees. and Right. <laughs> so, like, I mean, yeah, like, if you want to put but, your dick in me, then you got to pay more money. Right, but he haggles down to the point where he's still happy paying, and then she says, okay, well, pay me, and he presents a card, which yeah. I find funny, yeah. <laughs> because he refused to pay with a card the flat fee. Yeah. But he paid it with cash. But now he wants to pay with a card... And she doesn't accept a card because she's a hooker. <clears throat> like, yeah, hookers do. He's extraordinarily so uh, naive. Yeah, yeah, and at this point, he's haggled with a stripper. He's haggled with a peep show worker, and then he haggles with a prostitute. And I want to point right. out too that when he when he's with Mina Suvari again, with the, when he's talking about his naivety, Can he I says d- he says to her literally. They have this exchange where he says. I would like to have intercourse with you. And she says, that sounds nice. That sounds nice. <laughs> I thought that was good. Yeah. I have that to is say, good. I just want to say, she looked great. Mina, I, Mina oh, Suvari, yeah. Two years after Mina Suvari was in this, Mina Suvari was the lead in one of the best Stuart Gordon movies, yes. Stuck, uh, which is about... It's a based on a real, real story. Yeah, where this nurse hit a homeless man with her car and the homeless man got lodged in her windshield and she drove home and let him bleed to death overnight. That's the true story. And Stuart Gordon made it into a fucking awesome B-movie. What? Do you know who Stephen Ray is? No. Uh, He's in the crying How have I never heard of this movie? You remember the police inspector from V for Vendetta? The the British guy Uh, who kind of ends up being a good guy in the Mm -hmm. end? That guy plays the homeless guy that gets lodged in the windshield. And Mina Subari is the... 
into court. an enjoyable movie. Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's, it's, it's horrifying. It's, like, it's I wouldn't say enjoyable. It's word, super dark. Suspenseful. It's and also okay. it's a Stuart Gordon movie, so it's like an hour and twenty minutes. Every Stuart Gordon movie is like when the tightest movie. It's so good. Uh, okay, <laughs> anyway, uh, but okay, so yeah, Mina Subaru. But it's called Stuck. Yeah, there's Stuck. <laughs> Go watch Stuck. Everyone and me. Well, and really quickly, too, since I mentioned that, uh, this movie, we kind of hinted at this, but the entire, almost the entire cast, pretty much every person in this movie, is either a David Mamet regular from film or theater, or a Stuart Gordon regular. Yeah. Like, this movie, right. I get a lot, I get a good feeling that they probably wouldn't have made this movie unless they could get their friends who are just willing to go along with this because yeah. there's yeah. Like this this is a very alien movie in a lot of ways. This was not going to be a moneymaker at any point. Yeah. This yeah. was a weird people's art film. Well, yes. and when was and last That's why we watched it. When was last time David Mamet really had like a blockbuster? Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah, yeah. Well, but he didn't even direct it. That's from the director of Fear was it, oh, and Fifty Shades Darker. What? Yes. Okay. Was that I like Fear? Would it have been Olenia? Or am I no Oleana? But Oleana was not. Oleana is not even considered a good movie. Like, okay. So yeah, I don't think David Mamet actually has like a blockbuster hit. But not he as has, a director, but no. as a writer, he yeah. has six upcoming. Well, as, okay, Again. as a blockbuster writer, David Mamet wrote Wag the Dog. He also wrote The Untouchables. He wrote yeah. The Verdict. So this is why we know Mamet as a writer and yes. not as a director. Yes. I don't care if Fair. he's a director; he's yeah. a writer. Exactly. No, I'm just saying. I'm not saying we don't. Know, we know. Well, Morris, I'm just saying I he's know. a very good director. I well, get and, it. And, You're fine, but and, still, he's a writer. And House of Cards has critical acclaim. House of Games. House of Games. God damn it. House uh, of Cards has Kevin Spacey, and so does Glengarry Glen Ross. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes together. And Kevin Spacey is a douchebag, and Edmund is a douchebag. Yeah. And, so and it all full comes circle. together. Full circle. Yeah, his sexual violence is interesting, because... Uh, Edmund, sorry, yeah. not Kevin Spacey. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, it got dark there for a Ooh. second. <laughs> Seriously, uh, Edmund is always haggling with sex workers, which is a weird thing to do. But when... that's so shitty. I'm sorry, right? that's so no, fucking it's shitty. Incredibly shitty. It definitely speaks but to like a lack of value that he sees in women. In yeah. the when he finally does get someone to willingly have sex with him, he ends up murdering her. Let's yeah. not let's not get there yet, because I want to talk about the the shill guys. Yeah. Okay, the shill okay, guys, so yeah. Because the, the shill guys... I really quickly, before you get into it, in between just a little tiny bit of setup, bef- while he's wandering back and forth between the different sex parlors, he passes on the street a game of three-card Monty. Right. A, I will point out for the sake of what we're talking about, it is a black man uh, running the oh, three-card monster game. It's Dooley Hill. Dooley Hill. It's, it's two black two men. Two black men. Yeah. But one of the black men is pretending to be just a guy up the street who's playing the three-card Monty game. Yeah, right. he's, the, he's the guy who like gets other people to play. And some yeah. random guy basically says to William H. Macy as they're kind of watching this, uh, they're all, more or less, they're all in on it. The exact quote I wrote down is he says, they're all shills. They're, yeah, they're, they're all part of the act. Yeah. And so, eventually, after after the Mina Suvari bit, when she tells him to go find an ATM to get money, 
it is then that he wanders back up to the game and decides to play now. Yeah, and do like I said, Dooley Hill is the the dealer, um, which you don't know if you don't know him. He's the sidekick on Psych, and he's hey. on the West Wing. He's also yes, he's oh. the bodyguard on West Wing. Um, he was like my favorite character on West Wing when I watched it. Uh, besides Joshua, but anyway, so um, you know the whole game of three card Monty is you have to find the Red Queen, right? And Again, we have a flashback to the tarot reading where the Red Queen is turned up and it shows the Wheel of Fortune. Well, wait, he doesn't He doesn't pick the Red he, Queen. He picks the Black Queen. Right, it's the Black Queen. But, and it's the Wheel of Fortune. The, but there's a flash of the Red Queen and it's the Wheel oh. of Fortune. And, uh, and uh, the Wheel of Fortune, I looked it up, the Wheel of Fortune is usually a card where there is a, um, like, blind individual mm-hmm. kind of, like, lording over a, like, actual wheel. And the wheel usually has, like, letters or symbols on it. But it tends to mean good luck or karma or, in this case, a turning point. Mm. Yeah. Because the next thing, so as we mentioned, William Turning H. Macy, point. he doesn't pick the Red Queen, and so he's upset because he loses his money. Oh, I'm sorry, We should have. I should have pointed this out. When the guy tells him that they're all shills, he also tells Edmund how, what to do. He says, if you're going to pick... Pick the one they don't want you to pick, and that's how you win the game. Right, because we were talking about the one that you think is the red queen is not. Pick the other one. And this is important because we said before there's this thing where Edmund seems to assume that he is smarter than, than people, everybody. Yeah, but this is an example where he's clearly not. He assumes because right. the, they're black, and this man, this this white man, has told him this information. He assumes that he can outsmart them and get yeah, his money, right. and they they outsmart him. They clearly know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. and so he tries to call them on that's it. that's what they do. Right, that's their whole gig. So he tries to call them on it, and they're like, oh, you don't, you want to see the cards? You want to see the cards? Here's the cards. And then they, sh- they show him their fist, and then they take him into the back alley. They mug him and, like, beat the shit out of him. And it should be pointed out, I think, Alex, you caught this, that mm-hmm. they throw the cards at Edmund, and you see that there is a Red Queen in there. Right. And I did actually catch that because in the play, it doesn't say that. Yeah. And I was curious. Yeah. When I originally read the play, they say, oh, you want to see these cards? You want to see these cards? And then it just says, they punch him. Yeah. But in the movie, in the film, they do get super hostile and they say, oh, you want to see these cards? But they throw them at him and... One of the three cards is a red queen, so they were not cheating him. Yeah, it's no. it, so it's still weird that they beat him up because it seems like a bit much. Right, but it recontextualizes I, it as more <laughs> like they take offended. offense yeah. that he assumed like they they beat him fair and square, and that he's accusing them of cheating. Right, and, and I think that does also present that you have to consider that this film is being presented from the. Uh, from the narrative, from the point of view of an unreliable narrator. Yes. I think this film, even though you don't necessarily like Edmund, is from Edmund's point of view. And so, even when... Well, and if it, even if it's not from his point of view, you're alone for his journey. Right. But even in this case, where it seems like they're doing something ridiculous, 
I think he probably was more of an asshole than he seemed. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he was a huge asshole, I think Edmund hates himself and also is making himself out to be less of a shithead than he is. Yeah. I get, yeah, definitely I would agree with that. Like he is he's clearly a bad unlikable character throughout, but we are positioned with the proximity that the the Sir Grin's camera puts us to him, we right. are forced to sort of empathize with him to the degree because that it is he's possible. The protagonist. But at the same time it's hard to deny like we, it's hard to deny the degree that which he's a bad person. Right. So how much of a bad person is he if we weren't in an empathetic point of view. Yeah, right. definitely. So after he gets the shit kicked out of him by these two guys, uh, he goes to uh, it's like a hotel lobby. Yeah. And uh, he the hotel lobby. <laughs> and he he basically he asks the recept the guy at the the front desk if he can use the phone. The guy at the well, front desk. Well, it's a motel. A motel. Okay, yeah. it's definitely a motel. Because right before he comes in, it's like a drunk man and a woman stumbling in, yeah. clearly yeah. to like have sex. So again, the seediness, the seediness that oh, Stuart Gordon. Yeah. Yes. just like nails in this movie. Dirt and gross. Well, but, and he's got his go-to guy to be the motel clerk. Jeffrey Combs, uh, another, uh, one of the best, one of the definitive, like he is uh, as definitive for Sir Gordon as like William H. Macy and Joe Mantegna are for Mamet. Where it's like, you like you need you Jeffrey Combs see, to be in a, yeah, a Sir Gordon movie. Yeah, you can't see a Stuart Gordon mm-hmm. movie without having Jeffrey And again, he's and, uh, true to this, like the skeeziness, he has a goatee, he's wearing like a trashy Hawaiian shirt, he's eating chicken wings and he's eating like them in like a way that makes it look them they look cold i don't know yeah <laughs> they no, don't I look mean, good it's also his nails are painted and eating chicken wings with long painted nails just looks he's gross so yeah. sassy <laughs> he's so sassy because they end up getting into a fight about the payphone because he can't he doesn't have any money so he can't get a hotel room and, right well, and so he asked he asked the guy at the front desk like does this require do I need money for the phone? And he's like, I wouldn't know. And uh, Edmund loses his mind. He says my favorite line in the movie, uh, where he says, you want to live in a world like that? You want to live in a world where people treat each other this way? And he's like freaking out. And uh, eventually the the guy relents and says, no, I don't think, you don't need money for it. And Edmund goes to the phone and he needs 75 cents for it. So he just drops the phone and leaves. But honestly, I feel like I want to someday yell, you want to live in a world like that to somebody? I I, I highly recommend either that or why are you like this? Yeah. Why are you like this is the most fun thing to say to people. But... Um, I think this is a really good example of the beginning of when Edmund starts he loses blaming everything on everyone else. Yes. He starts blaming the world and the oh, way the world is the on turning people being point? shitty. Yeah. But it's not the turning point because we already were there at the Wheel of Fortune. Remember, Carrie? Right, but the Wheel of Fortune was right before he goes to the hotel. Well, he, but really? again, he, the Wheel, yes. the wheel oh, of yeah. Fortune, because he gets beat up, so that's other people. That, that beat mm-hmm. him up, regardless of what he did, regardless of whether or not they were offended, it's, they did it, I didn't do anything, yeah. they beat me up, and then he goes to the hotel, and the hotel guy is rude, I, I, like, I didn't say anything, I just asked for the phone, and granted, the hotel you owner- You want to live in a world like this? Yeah, the hotel owner is genuinely shitty, like- Okay, he's <laughs> a little bit of an asshole, but also, anyone who's ever worked in customer service- Okay, fair. Knows fair. that if someone who's beat to shit, bleeding- comes in and says, like, I want a room. He, the first thing he says when he says, I need a room is, call the cops. Yeah. 
He's like, I don't have my wallet. Call the cops. Yeah, he doesn't want to deal with the police. But he, he just wants he just wants what been, he wants. Right. Yeah. He's been beat up, but the guy at the hotel desk doesn't know why he's been beat up. It could be for a completely legitimate reason. And but he, that's the thing is he like doesn't give a shit. Yeah. He's just like, you know what? I can't deal with any more of yeah. this today because I'm in customer service and it's horrible. So the next scene after the hotel is he's like, well, I got to get some money. So he goes to a pawn shop to pawn his wedding ring. Mm -hmm. And while he's there, he pawns his wedding ring and he ends up buying a, what is it, like a World War II sur survivalist, survivalist knife? Okay, and again, that's buys what it the pawn shop guy said, but also I saw that knife. It's a knife with brass knuckles attached to the handle and no serration. Yeah. It is not a survival knife. It's a cheapo knife. It seems like he's lying to Edmund. But also, I do want to point out quickly, the, the pawn shop guy who uh, is clearly a Russian character, is played by Norm from Cheers, yeah. George Went, another, <laughs> another Stuart Gordon regular. Uh, again, just a wonderful, like, every performance in this movie is essentially a cameo, except for William H. Macy. It's amazing. But everyone, I don't know, this is another one where it's just like, George <laughs> Went doesn't really have mammoth dialogue to read, so he's just like, perfectly scuzzy. He, like, it's very believable as, like, sleazy Russian, uh... uh, uh to be fair, everything he said is in the script. Okay. It's wow. in the play. Um, there are two conversations going on in that scene. The conversation between William H. Macy and the owner ends pretty quickly, and he goes to talk to the guy in the back who's doing the pawning. Sure. But during that scene... The owner, who is Norm from Cheers, yeah. is talking to the other guy appraising stuff in the store, just talking about, like, oh, that's worth this, that's worth this, and that's where the knife comes from. Okay. So, so everything he says is in the script. So he buys this knife, and again, we have a moment where when he buys the knife, we see a flash of a tarot card, and the tarot card we see is the Ace of Swords. And the Ace of Swords means raw power, Ooh. victory, mental clarity. That's in the guy from the bar. Breakthrough. Pussy, power, money, adventure, religion, release. Yeah. That's in there, man. And so he buys this knife that signifies raw power. And in the next scene, he's still trying to get laid. He meets up with a pimp. And the pimp's like, yeah, man, I'll get you whatever you want. Like, let me take you to her. She's going to be clean. And they go down this alleyway, and the pimp pulls a knife on Edmund. And Edmund, uh, instead of reaching for his wallet, he reaches for his knife and basically beats the shit out of the pimp. And so he has a moment of power over you know, uh, the pimp, we should say, is is black. Yeah. And so he got beat, Edmund earlier got beat up by two black men, and now he's beating up a black man. And, and so also he, this ties into the conversation with the guy at the bar. Joe Mantegna. Yeah. Yep. And after he beats up this pimp, he go he goes to like a restaurant or a bar. He We should also really quickly I should mention that he is super racist. Oh when my he God. beats up the guy, oh, he goes he's so he, racist. He, the N word he is says yeah. every racial slur. He says coon, he says jungle bunny. He's just I've like, never even heard jungle bunny before and he says it. Yeah, he's it's, 
He's awful. Edmund sucks. Yeah, I mean, and, he's not a good guy. But it's it's definitely, like, there's a lot of, like, again, we, we, we're seeing the downward spiral. Like, yeah. we're seeing, like, blaming other people, and this is a moment where everything's been confirmed. The pimp does try to take advantage of him, and so it just confirms to him that everybody is awful, and so he allows his hate to just kind of spill out and he, right. and because he's in the right he feels that his hate is right yeah and that sorry so back to the i'm scene. sorry Carrie. well yeah. so no so he he goes to the restaurant he meets this waitress played by julia styles and the first thing he tells her is like i feel alive like we're all living in a fog and you we don't know how to feel alive and it's and, basically the red pill speech if you've ever been on reddit yeah <laughs> yeah, he Sorry. <laughs> yeah, he's he is exhilarated because he just beat the shit out of somebody. And so he ends up talking to Julia Styles and I I wrote this down but after he commits this act of violence, he finally has the literal balls to tell a woman that he wants to fuck her without yeah. paying for it's it. It's the yeah. only time he's confident enough to just say like, "Hey, Hey, I want to fuck you. Yeah. yeah. And so she, for some fucking reason, is like, yeah, okay. Even though she's 23. Yeah, and, and he's, he's 47. William H. Macy. Yeah. yeah. So, that you know, he says, like, I want to fuck you. And she's, and he, like, gives her this long speech about, like, you know, basically it's, like, carpe diem bullshit. Right. And cut to after they've had sex and he's talking to her at her apartment and... What are they? And he's well. It starts because he's t he pulls out the knife that he bought, and he's telling her about. Oh, right. yeah. And he's telling her he's being very racist, and he's talking about. He's kind of okay. talking about how, like, the whole thing from before about how where black people were raised to be a certain way, and mm -hmm. and how and how this tied into him Ugh. having this moment, and it's very racist. But it's he feels so empowered that yes. it empowers Julia Stiles to be. A homophobic. And well, also, before that, before the homophobia even, she gets in on the racism because she asks, did you kill him? And he says, I don't know. And she says, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And I yeah. wrote down, that was one of my notes was just, that's wonderful. Yeah. But yeah. then she also gets in on it because she does say, like, I hate faggots. Okay, yeah. and, and now I want to talk about this because we, this, this seems to me to be very important to the whole, my argument that the movie is about the search for identity. Because what happens is that Julia Stiles starts describing herself, at, her character starts describing herself as an actress. And uh, William H. Macy is like super enthusiastic. He's like, oh, will you act, will you perform something for me? He pulls up a seat in front of her and it's like, right. do anything for me. And, he's like, and she basically slowly is like, well, I only have done a few scenes. And, yeah, because he like, says, what plays have you done? And she says, 
well, I've done scenes. I've only done scenes. I shouldn't say only because they contain the kernel she of says, the play. She says, the work I've done, I've done for my peers. Right. And so he... And then he's like, well, then you're not an actress. And he begins, like, basically, like, very enthusiastically still, but he's, he's, he's trying to confront her about her identity. And up to this point, the whole reason he started on this journey is because he had this moment where he's like, this isn't the life I should be living. The whole thing with the tarot card you are not where you belong right and so well and he even says to her don't assume i'm dumb because i wear a suit and tie he is trying to address honesty and identity and not deceiving yourself and not deceiving others and he's trying to force this epiphany from her right yeah and this is where he yeah really addresses the be honest with yourself but because this, she thinks she's an actress, but... But doing this, when he does this, this makes her so uncomfortable that first she's like, I need you to leave. And then she actually runs to her bathroom to grab anxiety medicine to try to take because she is so... she's freaking she's out. She's so freaked out. And this whole time he's reasonable. brandishing the knife. And he's yes, like following he her and like walking right up to her and he's still shirtless holding the knife. And eventually, like... She starts saying, like, you're the devil. And she, I think, like, her very last line is, like, don't I'm hurt good. me. I'm good. I'm I good. I am good. And, yes. And he's, like, and he goes up there. He's, like, what are you, fucking crazy? And he starts killing her. And the way Stuart Gordon films it is we don't see her. We hear her being cut and we hear her, like, gurgling on her blood. Yeah. But we just see William H. Macy, like, yelling at her as and the getting, blood like, just blood splashes scattered. all right. over his body. This is a very Stuart Gordon shot. <laughs> it was great. There's no yeah. David Mamet scene where someone is, like, coated in blood. It is, like, such a Stuart Gordon moment. Yeah. And it, it is super dark and horrific, but it's also like very sort of dry at the same time. Yeah. It's almost yeah. comedic in its like brutality. Uh, but he, yeah. I he, just realized we're not even halfway through this movie chronologically. <laughs> we're. No, we're more than half. Okay. I feel like we're at the the turning, the real turning point. Yeah. <laughs> so, the Wheel of Fortune. The Wheel of Fortune, yes. Yeah. And whatever. If we go long, people people are listening to this. You're going to edit it. Listener, you're already an hour in. You're going to keep well, listening. Well, we're, we're at like the climax. We're about to go down the hill. Yeah. Because the next scene is him in the subway, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The lady with the hat. So... I believe in the play, the lady with the hat was on a platform, which it was implied that it was just the two of them. Which uh, was, it, so it made it a very different scene when yeah. in the film, they were in a subway car with a bunch of yeah. other people. Uh-huh. Yeah. Who were all bystanders to his insane behavior. Yeah. Which, yeah, because he starts talking to this woman on the train. She's wearing a hat. Not a big deal hat, just like you like it's a church like a, hat. It's a pillbox hat with a yeah. um a, uh, a little veil. veil. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, my mother had a hat like that, and he like keeps saying. He says, it "I'm to- not trying to start conversation. I'm just telling you, my mother had a hat." Because like she's that. not, and she doesn't care. I, if you're not trying to start doing, conversation, why do you care? Oh my god, she's, she's doing exactly what I would have done. Which is ignore them. Yeah. (laughs) Because you don't... As much as I want to give strangers the benefit of the doubt, I've been on enough subway cars in Chicago to know that you don't "Mm -mm." talk to strangers. uh, At least not most of the times. Yeah. Sometimes you talk to a guy 
who likes your painting on the train, and then you learn that he's really into karate, and you have a nice <laughs> conversation. But other times... <laughs> I know. I've, I've had more, quote-unquote, conversations. Wait, specific. I've, I've had so that many run-ins. happened to me. I feel like I've had so many run-ins on Chicago subways that are close to a man holding a knife in a business suit while saying, is everybody in this town insane? And it, it just... Right. That's how it ends, because... Yeah. It turns out if someone's just aggressively trying to talk to you on the train, uh, the you thing, don't want to talk to them. Yeah. The thing that he says that really drives me crazy, because so he's trying to talk to this woman in the hat, and she ends up moving away from him, and when she moves, he starts, like, actually physically harassing her and, like, getting all up in her business, and he says... I didn't just make it up. I'm talking to you. Did I say I wanted to lick your pussy? I'd like to... And then, you know, he starts, like, screaming at her, and he's like, mm-hmm. why won't you pay attention to me? And he says, I'd like to slash your fucking face apart. And he's just, like, right. screaming at her. And Getting she's finally... Really like, aggressive. Once he starts threatening her, she's like, help! Help! Help me! You know, and nobody, of course, is yeah. helping her, because when you're on the subway, no one you helps. don't... The first rule of the subway club is you don't... Don't pay attention to people on the subway. Yeah, anybody <laughs> no. anybody who needs help on the subway is basically Kitty, Kitty Genovese. Like, it's, yeah. you're, yeah. just, you're basically oh. in trouble. To be uh, fair, uh, wow. I actually learned recently that, like, four or five people called the cops for Kitty Genovese. That's oh, okay. not even true. Oh. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, okay, so you're the symbol that <laughs> Kitty Genovese represents. Yes, exactly. You are literally that. <laughs> When you are in trouble on the subway. Indeed, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lampshade. The subway is worse than being <laughs> Kenny Genovese. <laughs> the theme of this podcast is lampshade. Yeah. <laughs> cut your fucking face and make it into a lampshade. <laughs> right. So anyway, this woman, she like gets off the train, Edmund gets off the train, and he like rolls up on this church, oh, and yeah. the church, the priest is like, does uh, anybody want to testify? It, it because put, black church. Black lady on the train, black church. It's important yeah. how he deals with race between white and black in this movie. Yeah. And he even, too, before he goes to the church, he's sitting under, a, like, a painted wall, and the wall has a mural of some... It's it's oh. Martin Luther King. Oh, it's Martin Luther King. Yeah, I it's Martin Luther I, King I, I, Jr. I did not, yeah, it didn't look like. To but me. it's not mentioned in the play, which I find interesting. Yeah. But in the movie, the shysters are black. The church is black. The lady on the train is black. The pimp is black. The pimp is black. It's all important. Race. Yeah. Yep. And that didn't come through in the the uh, text necessarily. Yeah. Oh, in the play. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, another subtlety of uh, visual cinema. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> subtlety. <laughs> I chose the wrong qualifier. Okay. Uh, okay. So uh, they roll. He rolls up on this church, and he's like, "I'll testify." But as he's about to testify, the woman that he assaulted on the train has a police officer with a her. A black police officer. Yes, yes. a black police officer. Also, yeah. And she says, that's the man that tried to rape me on the train! And he tried to rape me! And the, the police officer asks for identification, but if you remember, Edmund was robbed. He was mugged. So he doesn't have his wallet. He doesn't have any identification. And then the police officer discovers the knife on him, and he gets and, taken yeah. to the police station. Uh, really quickly, what... 
would you guys say is the significance of this moment where he he says he's going to testify? What do you, you think know, he is going to say in that moment? Or I what? know. I I don't. I don't know. I think the significance I, is that, again, he thinks he's smarter than other people. And so by going to testify, he is telling all these people how smart he is. I also think he's going to tell them something similar to what he tried to tell to Glenna. Yeah. Essentially the, we need to be honest. We need to... Go through it with me. Go through it with me. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, that's exactly it. I think that was probably it. It's just, experience this. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I... I think it also it's like an escape. Because I think what Edmund is really looking for is attention. And by testifying, he's getting a lot of attention. Yeah. So, I don't really, I don't, I don't know what he would say, but I don't think that's really the point. Like, what, what he says is inconsequential to why he's, he's doing it. Right, right. But, especially, that's backed up by the fact that when the policeman comes to be like, oh, right, you're coming with me, he goes, no, 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 I have to testify. testify, I'm an elder of this church that he's never been to before. Yeah. Yeah. So he ends up going to the police station, and the next scene is him getting interrogated by the guy who's the other doctor on Nip Tuck, not Christian. <laughs> what is I the was other? Who that guy Sean. Was. His name's Sean. Sean from Nip Tuck. Oh man, I blew that Um, but uh, he's like, so uh, you know, you assaulted this woman, and he's trying to, you know, he's trying to get Edmund to talk. And they talk for a while about the woman that he's assaulted on the train. And then he ends it by being like, well, why'd you kill that girl? Oh, actually, exactly the line. He says, why'd you kill that girl? Edmund says, what girl? And the cop says, the girl you killed. Which, again, that nice little circularity that, of mm, mammoth dialogue where there's a lot of repetition. Every one of them, they say, why, what, Girl, 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 kill, killed, you, you. Like, uh, there's so many yeah. repeated world, that, words. That, that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really, like, it's classic Mammoth. It, it, right. Even just, like, minimal, sim- simple, straightforward dialogue is mammoth Also, I want to point this out. Mammoth. Somehow both Alex and I have gotten bloody noses during this recording. No, no, no. This is my finger. Oh, your finger's bleeding? Well, my oh nose my is God. bleeding. We're so, separately a- bleeding for Appropriately for a Stuart Gordon episode. <laughs> there's a lot of How blood. How did I not notice? <laughs> I bled on the floor. It's great. Oh, yeah. my oh, God. Man. Good. <laughs> I'm glad this happened for this episode. Yay! It would have been more important for a drink of blood. But, uh, wow. So well, guys, I'm not bleeding. So after I'm okay. so far, <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't you tempt me. <laughs> Go through this with me, Alex. <laughs> Go through this with me. Um. So after the cop uh, yeah. confronts him about killing the, <laughs> the killer Glenna, which this was a white cop. I just feel like it needs yeah, to be mentioned yeah. no, at this fair. point. Uh, well, so, I already explained that when I said he was Sean from Nipto. Oh yeah, <laughs> good point. Uh, so. Not everyone um, knows that. <laughs> so it cuts to William H. Macy is in full prison garb, and he is put, he's being walked down the, the prison corridor by just a prison guard. Okay. He's in prison. And I he's say. super naked. Yeah, when, There's I'm sorry. Balls shot. When he's being walked through the prison corridor, he is nude, and no prison does that. Yeah. I don't know what that was supposed to mean, except for vulnerability, yeah. but he was completely nude. Yeah. 
And again, that's an example of the symbolism of this film versus realism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if that was a Stuart Gordon choice or a David Mamet choice. Oh, okay, it wasn't in the play, but nothing's in the play. It's just a script, so... All right, so before his roommate shows up, is this when he has the second <laughs> meeting? Cellmate! <laughs> Cellmate, is this, is this when Rebecca Pigeon has her last scene where she yes. comes to see him? Yes. Yeah. Um... But I should, I want to say that when he's getting interviewed by the cop, before he confesses to murdering the girl, he says, look, I was bored. I went out on the town. I learned my lesson. Whatever I've done, I'll make it right. But he's also so smiley. Yeah, yeah. he's the very smug. The entire time he's in custody, I wouldn't even say smug, he's happy. Yeah. It's the only time he's been happy in the film. He's yep. just like, yeah. yeah. Well, he just had a crazy. He essentially lived, you know, as as loosely as you can use that word that night, and so he's like dealing with the ramifications of it, and he's not yet ready to come down from that high. I guess, but I also find him happier with the prison experience than. Like, he's not happy after he kills Julia Stiles' yeah. character. He's not happy when he's doing the things that get him well, this jailed. Goes he's to, happy in jail. Yeah, this is kind of goes to the theory that we were talking about with Lee of, like, is this movie all just a journey for Edmund to figure out that he's gay and he does like black people? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. My, honestly, my theory... The my theory... I mean, jumping ahead before we talk about the last scene, but... My theory is that the idea is, like I said, he's like a lost lamb. He just does what fate tells him to. And in prison, he is not threatened by choice. He has no choice. Choice is totally deprived from him in a way that the world, even though he's following these symbols, they don't seem to lead him to anywhere where he has sat- satisfaction or catharsis. Whereas right. in prison, it's just, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. He has to, he has to more or less accept things as they are, and he can't actually, he has no say in what his life is. And he's happy with that. Yeah. He's, he's very what's, happy just accepting something that he has no choice with. What's the, I know I'm skipping ahead, but what's this, the significance of him writing that letter? You know, well, okay, I remember, think it's well, just. I think the key thing from the letter, is that in the play? Yes. Okay. And I, I Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, the key thing from that letter for me is that he talks about, I went on a date with your daughter. I always assumed that she had been blackmailed into doing it, but it strikes me now that she might have just wanted to, and I, it was more important to me to believe that she was blackmailed. Exactly. That was yeah. the That was the thing that I came away from as the important bit of that was he always thought it was more important... That someone didn't want to do something and was forced to do it than Mm. to do it of their own free will. The power position. The power position. And so that definitely relates to his encounters with the sex workers. Right. Where he... When he needs sex, he doesn't go to a bar and try to meet someone on the level. He wants to meet someone who has to do it based on... Money, like there, it's a business transaction, which is also probably why when he does have consensual sex with Glenna, yeah. he feels the need to make it something uncomfortable for yeah. her. Sure, he 
fights to find something that will make her uncomfortable and then presses that issue. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, okay, so Edmund, he gets a cellmate and the cellmate essentially rapes him. Like, they talk for, there's yeah. a few awkward conversations, but then the It's guys, about race. He t- he's about like, race. Race. Oh, yeah. Like, he says, well, I think it's something along the lines of, uh, like, I always thought white people should be in prison, not black people. You know why? And the prisoner, <coughs> the, the prisoner who is black. It's yeah. Bo- Bokeem Woodbine, who I think of from Fargo, because Karen pointed oh, out. Oh, he's so good. Thing is, he's from he's, Fargo? Okay. Yeah. He's, he's not in the movie. He's in the TV show. Yeah, TV but show. Oh, he's so okay. William good. William H. Macy is in the movie. Uh, ah! Fargo! Oh, my God. The yeah. circle. Also, to tie into it, like, the Babe in the Woods thing is a is basically the plot of the man who wasn't there, the Coen Brothers movie. Oh. That's exactly what Billy Bob Thornton's character arc is. But anyway, uh, so he's talking to Bokeem Woodbine, the fellow prisoner, and he says, "Like I think white people should be in prison because that way they can get to know black people, essentially. Right. Oh, well, God. <laughs> he says, then they'd be with black then people. Then they'd be with black people. Which I took as a... Uh, an implication of punishment, yeah, for white people, which is kind of gross. Good. Again, super racist. Yeah. yeah, he's. But it's key that when I wasn't sure who to be mad at but about this film. But it's key that when the prisoner, what happens when the prisoner tells him they're going to have sex? Essentially, if you boil it down to well, he, you know, he I know, said but you're you, gonna suck my dick. But it's not a negotiation. Yeah. It's, right, it's not a the conversation. Same way that it's the he inverse. Was talking to his wife, that it's Edmund the inverse of the beginning. Spoke to his wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And the very final speech he makes is the inverse of what the fortune teller tells him, or not the inverse. I'm sorry, it's the same thing the fortune teller tells him. It's this <laughs> predestination. Yeah, it's all about why things are predestined, how they're predestined. And I think that might have been more clear in the play, because the play, she lists, like, these are the four things that can predestine your life, and one leads to the other. Yeah. Well, and Carrie, in that very, like, basically the last scene of the movie, uh, William H. Macy, who is now, as you mentioned, wearing a hilarious bald cap, makes his head look huge. It looks like he he looks like an alien. I honestly, I will say, I didn't Uh, notice it the first two times. Same here, but this time. He looks like a plucked bald troll. It looks really weird. And he has, like, a great handlebar mustache, but he has a tattoo. Yeah. And the tattoo is of the Three of Swords, and the Three of Swords represents pain. Separation, grief, and rejection. So, there's that. That's the weirdest thing, because the only time he seems fully content and really comfortable in his surroundings is at the end of the film. Yeah. It's it's more like he's just succumbed to his fate. I guess. I mean, that's... But he doesn't seem to have grief... Like, like, he has grief seemingly in the letter over the fact, like, recognizing the fact that he never recognized his hang-up about needing women to be blackmailed. But that, and that it doesn't seem, like, big enough. It seems like there should be more. And especially, I hate to phrase it this way, because it is, the, considering everything we described, but the last scene is kind of, like, the warmest and fuzziest scene of the whole movie. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because it's, they have... He and his cellmate have this 
deep discussion of like the implications of consciousness. And, and then, like you said, it's like two people having one speech. They're so on the same page. Yeah, they're that incredibly they're, in sync. They're, they're going words, back and forth, yeah. just flowing one sentence. And then they say goodnight and they kiss and cuddle in bed. They kiss. It, it should be, it, it's like, it's a very romantic kiss where like. William H. Macy approaches for the kiss. And That's they kiss the right on the lips. They're looking right in each other's eyes. And then he, yeah. He and is, then they spoon. He spoon and with William spoon. H. Macy being the little spoon. And that is the final image of the film. Though it, I should say it fades out with him breaking into a smile as he closes his eyes to go yeah. to sleep. So he's again, happy. He's finally comfortable. Yeah. He's more comfortable than he was with his wife. And what, what yeah. does that mean? Because I mean, the cops, I, we didn't mention this, but the cop asked if he was gay. So that oh, was important that. at one yeah, point. I yeah. He's like, hey, are you gay? And, and the, he and said, William well, H. because he says, said when, when he was talking about the woman on the train, the woman yeah. with the hat, um, the cop says, like, well, did you, try did to you come on up? to her? Yeah. Did you try to pick her up? And he says, no, why would I do that? And he says, well, she was an attractive woman. He says, she was not an attractive woman. And the cop says, are you gay? I and William H. Macy, <laughs> William H. Macy says, that's not any of your business. He doesn't say no. Oh, man. He I totally missed that. He doesn't say no. He says, but he, that's not any of your business. This is another underlying theme in this film, I feel like, because he always presents this. He's always trying to get sex from women, but it's always a transaction. Yeah. And he always And when is he does finally get black sex, people. Well, and when he does finally get sex, he kills the woman. Right. Who has also just said she hates faggots. Yep. But. I feel like it's a it could be this duality of character because at the end when he seems the happiest he's been in the entire film he is happy spooning with a black man. Yeah, who that's has why sex we, with him. Yeah. Who that's has sex so, with him. Yeah. That's why we were he's, asking like is this whole journey just so that Edmund can discover that he's gay and actually likes black people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different look, and I don't know if I'm entirely on board with it, but that's another interpretation. It's worth considering, because, I mean, it, it, it's... It, it, I feel like, especially based on what I've seen with Mammoth, I don't think Mammoth would would make something that straightforward. Right. But it's, at sure. the same time, it's kind of, at the same time, implicit in a lot of the details you just pointed out to me. Right. It seems kind of like... If it's not the focus of the movie, it's at least like a subtextual element that, like, yeah, he does seem to like like the we talk about this a lot. Yeah, that's normal. Uh, we talk about this <laughs> a lot about the fact that like people who like we people. This is a broad the thing we say about people in the United States that like they repress what they want. Like someone hates gay people because they, they want to be gay. Secretly they, have gay urges, And they have to yeah. repress it and so they hate people who don't repress it. Right. And it seems to be like that that sort of logic follows with the way in which Edmund's arc throughout the movie plays out. So sure. yeah. It's, it's definitely it's an important element for I sure. can see that I also didn't feel like it was a super mammity thing or fit with necessarily the style of the writing, the way yeah. it flowed, it seemed too simple. But that's another thing to consider. Sure. Well, and as we've talked, we've said before, this kind of feels like After Hours, but the dark version. Yeah, even darker <laughs> version of After Hours. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
It's like After Hours of Griffin Dunn uh, actually was the murdering people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After Hours meets Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> well, All right. Well, what yeah. else do you guys want to talk about? Yeah. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on in the movie? We actually pretty... We, we I, I think we were very comprehensive. I do not have anything I'm thinking of. Well, uh, well then, if, yeah. if we don't have anything else to talk about, we can get into teachable moments. I have a, I have a question for you, Alex. Right. In the in the play, do the tarot cards factor in as much? Like, do they no. make a point? I thought in the play, I read that I read the play, and I thought that tarot scene was super disjointed and had no place at the beginning yeah. of the play. So I was actually pretty pleased with how it was woven into the film. Yeah. Mammoth, in Mammoth's adaptation, well, at least speaking uh, to Glengarry Glen Ross, the most famous thing about the movie of Glengarry Glen Ross is its opening scene, which is not in the play. It's added to make the movie flow as a movie instead of a play. Right. And it seems like, again, he did this with Edmund, where he changed the intro to be more cinematic. He at I... least, like, like I said, he's not, he's obviously not a director, he's a writer first, but no, he does yeah. understand the language of film to the extent that he can adapt his own work to work better as a movie. Right. Yeah. And honestly, I think a lot of Mammoth's work works better as film. I do not know. That is perhaps my biggest issue with this was reading the play. I have no idea how you would put this on as a play. I do not know how this would be presented sure. in an enjoyable way as <laughs> a play. You'd have to have so many people. There are so many scenes. Well... To be honest, in the play, uh, in the original production, a lot of the parts, the smaller parts, were played by... Multiple like, people. The same well, people. yeah. One person would be playing three or four sure. roles. But it doesn't matter. You're changing scenes every ten seconds. Well, I wonder... It's insane. It works better. It works much better as a film than as a play, which is why they barely had to adapt it. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, too, like, to what extent... On stage, the having actors play multiple parts adds or possibly even detracts from the material. Because it seems like if you're if it premiered, according to the book, when it premiered, the very first performance they had actors playing multiple roles. Yeah. So is that intentional? Are like certain type, certain female characters or certain uh, black characters supposed to blur together, or are right. they supposed? Is there just like some sort of structural or textual element? that they decided to switch out or right. change. And, uh, is it specific to the stage or mm -hmm. is it specific to the, the way it's written? Yeah, I... Well, and I mean, I've seen shows where certain roles are intended to be played by the same person because yeah. it adds an extra... Uh, sorry, an extra thematic concept. Like, it really ties in that these characters are similar. Yeah. But... I didn't necessarily see that, and maybe I've only read the play once, and I've only seen the movie once. Yeah. <laughs> but perhaps upon rewatchings or rereadings, I would be able to see how the characters that were played by the same actor in the original production tied together and why that was important. Yeah. yeah. It's a real shame that there aren't more, like, I, like I've, it's like, contrary to the nature of theater, but there, there aren't more recordings of these, like, original performances of so many of these plays. I would love to see right. the way in which it was, like, 
meant to be performed on a stage to compare with the film adaptation. Because with a book, you can read the book and then see the adaptation and see the difference in point of view. But with the play, the, there's a lot that is added in the in the, the in direction the and yeah. in the performance. And there's a lot that's lost in translation. <clears throat> not to mention with between Mammoth. reading something and when it was first performed. And as we mentioned with Mammoth, yeah. there's like a rhythm to the dialogue that I imagine in the film they have to adapt Mammoth's rhythm for screen, but on stage they can probably pace it in a different way that's And it presents in a different way. Yeah. I think the biggest difference between film and theater is really the expectations the audience expects a certain rhythm a certain pausing a certain production as opposed to in a film you are expecting more realism than you would be on stage yeah because it's just a different climate i agree with that or at least a certain type of realism right right it's more about content on stage as opposed to emotion, and the emotion reigns in film. Yes. All right, well, now are you guys ready for your teachable moments? I'm ready for mine. I can at least start. Okay, yeah, you, you go, go to town. Okay, so I mentioned this before, but this movie is filled with uh, regular players of both Mammoths and Gordons, and I think if you're going to make something like this that like Alex and Carrie said is not really intended for an audience. Like it's clearly not made <laughs> it's made to make money and it's very much like their own weird experiment with uh, this material. Just trying to, it seems like they made it to see if they could make it. Uh, it's a good idea. If you're going to do something that's like more for you, you want to do it with people who get you. And this, like we said, there are a few people like Denise Richards and Julia Stiles who aren't really regulars in these movies. Though Julia Stiles is in David Mamet's State in Maine. Now that I think about it, she's really good in that. Uh, but the people who are the reliable Stuart Gordon regulars and the regular David Mamet people, they take these little parts and they hit them with such precision that it has such a great effect. And so I guess my teachable moment is that if you are going to do something that is more challenging in tone, you really got to know the people you're working with. You can't expect a brand new roster of people to get where you're coming from, especially if it's like something from the deepest recesses of your mind, or in Stuart Gordon's case, something that's like seedy in a very specific lived in way. You want people who are comfortable portraying that seediness and you want people who are comfortable with bizarre forms of dialogue and i think that's a big part of what makes this movie so interesting is that good union between cast and crew so there you go mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as you got one um this is a this, tougher one it, it's a it's a tough movie in general i honestly think it could have been adapted a little bit more for the screen and i know i said i think it's better on screen than it is on stage, but I still think the naturalism of the script could have flowed a little bit better, perhaps, if someone who wasn't Mammoth had a hand in adapting yeah. it, it would have been a little a little more so you're saying understandable. If, if someone could see it from outside. Yes. Like someone from another planet. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> essentially, I, I think you should always have someone with a different perspective than you 
to look at what you think is perfect because the best way to get something well-rounded is to have multiple perspectives on it. And I feel like this was very, very mammoth and didn't get a chance because it was mammoth controlled. Yeah, and I don't think Stuart Gordon, I love Stuart Gordon, but Stuart Gordon's not necessarily a director who's like, I'm going to delve into the themes of right. this work. He's like, he I'm going to... He was going to work with Mammoth and do what Mammoth wanted. And, and he's going to make the atmosphere very lived. It's, like, right. it's like very realistic, but oh, not yes. in a way that is necessarily trying to investigate the themes in the work. It's right. just like, here is a world for the dialogue to take place in. Yes, yeah. and I think it Needed a little rounding out, but it was very interesting. Clearly, we had a lot to talk about. Yeah, we've talked it. about it for longer than the movie. <laughs> yeah. Carrie? Um, my teachable moment is mostly about David Mamet. Um, I haven't always appreciated his work on first viewing, but I find that I get more out of it on second or third viewings. And that is because he works a lot with themes. His his work isn't straightforward. And so I guess I would just encourage people who haven't checked him out to make sure that you're doing a thorough investigation of his work. But what would you say about someone who wants to check out Stuart Gordon? Oh, I would just encourage you to go through every single one of his movies. <laughs> any any highlights? Any personal favorites? I mean, I really love... Oh, gosh. Uh, I, re- I mean, I love Reanimator. You've got to love Reanimator. Oh, Fortress. It's a classic. Yeah, Fortress is really great. Um, Space Truckers is hilarious. Space Truckers, which involves, <clears throat> if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, a gas-powered mechanical penis. <laughs> oh, and you... This really- <laughs> is a very different movie from any of Stuart Gordon's I, other movies, I like, is what I've learned. Yeah. I like From Beyond, but From Beyond is, like, pretty weak from a plot standpoint. It just has awesome uh, special effects. King of the Ants is, like, Clockwork Orange in reverse, so if you're curious as to what that means, check out King of the Ants. <laughs> this um, film makes no sense as a Stuart Gordon film, yeah. is what I've now just learned. <laughs> Yeah, Castle Freak. Um, he didn't what do Head of the Family, happened? right? No, but he did Dolls. Oh, yeah, Dolls. He did Dagon. Dagon is awesome. Dagon, if you want a really great H.P. Lovecraft adaptation, check out Dagon. Okay, I've got a show um, that Gosh, he's so great. Uh, I, I just recommend him. Robot Jacks. Yeah, Robot Jacks <laughs> is hilarious. Robot Jacks is so good. I feel like there's one we're definitely missing. Oh, there's gotta be. Oh, uh, what is it? All right, uh, we'll give we'll give you a moment to look it up. We're basically over, so we can we can waste a little bit of time. You could also just put it in the show notes. No, we got to find out now. No, we got to find out. <laughs> Trying to think. Uh, well, there's the wonderful ice cream suit. That's, yes, is that, that, it? that, 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 that movie, movie. Yes, it is. It's the wonderful, the wonderful ice cream. suit? The wonderful ice cream suit with uh, I'm Edward, prove it Edward right James now. almost a Edward James almost impersonator. No, the that's just a stupid reference. <laughs> The wonderful ice cream suit is so great. What is it the name of a movie? Oh, Pit and Pendulum. Yeah, we still gotta watch the Pit and the Pendulum adaptation he did with Lance Henriksen as the lead. I've seen a Pit and the Pendulum. But is it that one? I don't know. No, I think the wonderful ice cream suit was what I was thinking (laughs) The wonderful... That movie okay, is so we great. Should, we should probably yeah. be done because okay, we're talking about weird stuff. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> All right, well, 
The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit is basically Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, but with (laughs) five Hispanic men wearing the same suit. That's amazing. It's It's so good. And it's like, it's less than 80 minutes long. So you have time to watch it. Yes. It's like the (laughs) most, it's so much fun. All right. Well, this has been The Secret Cinema. (laughs) (laughs) It has. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. I'm Alex. Thanks for rejoining us, Alex. I'm so happy to be here. I hope you do some more episodes in the future. <laughs> Me too. And if there are no more episodes after this, it is because Alex and I both bled to death. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go throw away but I'm some, okay. some bloody Kleenex. Carrie's fine. Carrie's so doing great. She'll just carry the torch for now. And uh, we uh, hope to. And we'll be back sometime soon. So bye. Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Carone. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at www.vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at www.letterbox.com slash paoloerasmus. Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Levy Productions. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening!